I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to Misconduct. I'm your host, Colleen. I'm excited to announce that I'm going to be attending the first annual True Crime Podcast Festival on July 13th, 2019 in Chicago. The festival is specially designed around your desire to mingle, interact, and have casual conversations with the podcasters that you listen to regularly. There will be panel discussions and live episode recordings, and some of the shows registered are Canadian True Crime, The Vanished, True Crime Fan Club, Apex and the Abyss, and The Fall Line. You're really not going to want to miss this. Go to their website, tcpf2019.com, to find more information about tickets and the hotel. Prices do go up closer to the event, so you're not going to want to wait. When you buy your ticket, make sure you mention misconduct on the ticket registration survey, and I'll see you at the True Crime Podcast Festival. And with that, let's get into the episode. This episode covers the murder of the Bowles family in Crestline, California. James and Darlene, along with their two sons, Bobby and Tommy, were killed during a weekend away in the San Bernardino Mountains in the summer of 1965. On the afternoon of August 13, 1965, James and Darlene Bowles were packing weekend bags for them and their two sons into their Dodge sedan in front of their Fountain Valley home. August 13th was a Friday, and the family was looking forward to getting out of town to spend the weekend in their mountain cabin in the town of Crestline. Fountain Valley is a suburban town in Orange County. The Bulls were ready to leave behind their routine daily life for their first weekend away in their newly finished cabin. This project had been some decade in the making when James and Darlene bought the lot in the mid-1950s with the intention of eventually building a cabin. Earlier that month, James had taken a weekend to furnish the cabin with bare-bones furniture that the family would need to stay for the weekend. They hadn't even had a chance to set up a phone line yet. While the rest of the family was excited for their first day in the cabin, Darlene couldn't shake the feeling that something was wrong. When letting people know about the family's weekend plans, she had confided in a friend that she had a bizarre dream about her family going to the cabin for the weekend trip and never coming home. As the week drew to a close, Darlene still couldn't shake the bad feeling about her family's upcoming trip. The morning of Friday the 13th, Darlene told a co-worker that she felt if the family left for the trip, that no one would ever see them again. Her concerns didn't deter the plan. 
Most people were hoping to get out of town that weekend to try to escape the heat wave that had blanketed the area. August 13th was the eighth consecutive day of triple-digit weather in the area. The Bulls were just four of the approximately 120,000 so-called weekenders who fled to the San Bernardino Mountains in search of relief. This was also the peak of the Watts riots in nearby Los Angeles. In fact, the day the Bulls left for the cabin, national news was dominated by the arrival of 2,300 National Guardsmen who had been deployed to try and suppress the unrest. James and Darlene finished packing their belongings into their car. Their two sons, Bobby and Tommy, and their family dog, a dachshund named Barbara, got into the back seat, and the family started the two-hour drive to their cabin. As the miles of highway wound the sedan out of town and up through the San Bernardino Mountains, Darlene's bad feeling about the weekend followed. They arrived at the cabin late Friday afternoon and planned to return home on Sunday night, just in time for James to head to work on Monday morning. Darlene hoped that she was wrong and pushed the nagging feeling out of her head and tried to settle in for a weekend of fun with her family. Tragically, Darlene ended up being right in the worst possible way. As Monday morning turned to the early afternoon, various members of the Bulls' extended family had their own bad feeling that something wasn't quite right. No one had heard from the family since Friday the 13th, and they had been due back into town the night of Sunday the 15th. James's mother, Hester, knew the cabin did not have a phone line installed yet, but still found it odd that no one had called her on Sunday night to let her know that they had made it home safely. Not wanting to be a bother, she tried to distract herself that whole morning. Hester assumed that James or Darlene would call when they had a chance. Maybe they got a late start heading home from the cabin on Sunday, and James didn't have a chance to call when they got home. After all, James did have to head into work first thing Monday morning. When Hester could no longer take it, she called James' office at the Hughes Aircraft Company in El Segundo. She was told that James had not arrived at work that morning. Then Hester called Darlene's mother, Rinna. When the line picked up, Hester was met by an equally anxious Rinna who had not heard from the family since she went shopping with Darlene that previous Friday. Rinna told Hester that she and Darlene spoke often on the phone and she was surprised that she hadn't gotten a call from her yet. Rinna then called her son Floyd and told him that she had not heard from his sister since she and her family left for the cabin. Floyd later told investigators he felt that Hester and Rinna were getting worked up for no reason. He thought maybe James hadn't arrived at his office yet because the family decided to extend their trip an extra day, or maybe they hadn't called yet because they were busy unpacking and getting back into their weekday routine. When he wasn't able to assuage their worries, Floyd offered to track down James, Darlene, and the boys himself. Unable to reach them at their home or work, Floyd figured they must still be at the cabin. Floyd hadn't been to the cabin for several years. In fact, he hadn't ever seen the finished product. He had only visited the land plot once after it was purchased. With no way to get to the cabin, he made a call to the Bulls contractor to get the address. Floyd also called the San Bernardino County Sheriff to ask them to perform a welfare check, but he was told that he would have to wait. San Bernardino County has the largest land area of any county in the United States. San Bernardino County is actually larger than nine of the smallest states in the U.S., and without traffic, it can still take four hours to drive from the westernmost point to the eastern border. 
1965, Crestlin was a rural town with few permanent residents. Most of the structures in town were only occupied on the weekends or during the holidays. Sheriffs told Floyd they would contact an office closer to Crestline and pass along a request to check the cabin, but with the caveat that they couldn't promise when the check would happen, because the station that served Crestline was responsible for covering a large area and there were only a few officers on staff. Floyd waited for four long hours with no word from the sheriff or his sister before getting into his car and driving to the cabin himself. At this point, no one had heard from the bulls, and Floyd himself had started to worry that something had gone wrong. He arrived in the mid-afternoon to find an empty-looking cabin with no cars in the driveway. The cabin was built on the slope of a hill with steps leading up to a large porch. Floyd passed by the open window on his way to the front door, and through the glass he saw the bull's dog Barbara dead on the couch covered in blood. The front door of the cabin was unlocked, and Floyd entered. Aside from the gruesome discovery on the couch, nothing appeared to be amiss in the living room. The cabin itself was not very large, with only two bedrooms and one bathroom. Floyd headed towards the first bedroom, where he was met with the bodies of James and his nephew Bobby. They were lying on the ground next to the bed. Entering the room further, he found the body of his sister Darlene on the floor inside of the closet. Tommy's body would later be found by investigators in the closet underneath Darlene. Floyd backed out of the room and ran out of the cabin and returned to his car. With no working phone line in the cabin, he had to drive down to the sheriff's station a couple miles away to report the murders. Floyd later told a reporter that he felt that he'd remain calm and in control during the drive to the station and while making the initial report. Detectives' notes revealed that Floyd entered the station completely in shock at the scene that he had discovered. Investigators blocked off the crime scene and got to work. It was determined that the bulls had been killed by a 22 caliber rifle and the family had been shot a combined 42 times. Police theorized that the family was forced into one bedroom at gunpoint. James was shot first 15 times, then Bobby was shot 10 times. Darlene and Tommy hid in the closet, and the perpetrator had to fight with Darlene to get the closet opened. Finally, the door had to be kicked off its runner in order to get it opened, and Darlene was shot 14 times, and Tommy was hit a total of three times. Floyd didn't originally see Tommy's body in the closet because Darlene had crouched over him in an attempt to protect him from the shooter. It did not look like the home was robbed, however, with only furniture and the family's weekend bags, there was not much in the cabin to take. James's wallet was found in the home, and there was no cash inside, but investigators weren't certain that there was any money in it to begin with. What was missing was the family's sedan that they had taken from Fountain Valley to the cabin. An area search around the cabin located the car later that night, just a half a mile up the road. Police staked it out for a few hours to see if someone would return to the car, and when no one came back, the car was processed for evidence. Investigators found a couple of partial prints on the car door handles, and they found a car key underneath the car. Investigators noted that it seemed like it had been purposefully kicked underneath the car. It was determined early on in the investigation that anything stolen from the home was secondary to the murder. Whoever committed this crime did so with murder as the priority, and a planned robbery was ruled out because the house was still in the process of being furnished. 
Anyone casing the house would know that there was not much inside, and in Crestline, so many houses are only occupied on the weekends or holidays, so it would make more sense to rob one of these established cabins if that was the primary motive. Police canvassed the locals in the area to see if they had noticed anything out of the ordinary that weekend. They estimated that there were about 120,000 weekenders in town, in addition to the few thousand full-time residents, so there was no shortage of people to interview. The bulls had been seen out and about in town and around their cabin from Friday to Saturday afternoon. On Saturday afternoon, James and Darlene chatted with a neighbor that they crossed paths with while out on a walk. The neighbor later told investigators that they discussed their cabin construction. Darlene mentioned that after spending time at the cabin, she and James had changed their mind about who would finish the interior cabinetry. James and Darlene had wanted to make the interior an ongoing project for their weekends, but now they wanted to hire someone else to do the job. Once the group had reached a fork in the road, they split up. James and Darlene walked up the driveway towards their cabin, and the neighbor continued down the road to theirs. A waitress would later tell investigators that Saturday afternoon, around 4 p.m., the entire Bulls family was seen at the San Moritz Club for a late lunch. She mentioned she remembered the family because Darlene told her one of her sons was diabetic and unable to eat anything with sugar, so she had a lot of questions about the menu. She also said that James briefly left in the middle of lunch to take a call, and when he returned, James and Darlene seemed irritated with each other. Unfortunately for the investigation, on Saturday night, a large party involving several cabins and over 300 people took place just down the street from the Bulls' cabin. The Bulls were not seen at the party, and other neighbors who skipped the party didn't report hearing anything out of the ordinary in the neighborhood. The proximity of this party to the Bulls' cabin would have likely drowned out any screaming or gunshots. One neighbor stated in her interview that the party was so loud, if she had heard any screaming, she would have assumed that it was coming from the party. She had spent the evening reading on her porch with the bull's cabin in view. She said she thought the bull's cabin was empty and she didn't hear or see anything coming from that direction. By Sunday mid-morning, neighbors reported that the bull's sedan was gone. They assumed that the family had gotten an early start back down the mountain, and no one else was seen going in or out of the cabin on Sunday, August 15th. Investigators managed to piece together through interviews that the last time anyone saw the bulls was late in the afternoon on Saturday, August 14th. Their car was in the driveway until nightfall that day and gone by the time neighbors were out and about the next morning. Investigators believe whoever murdered the family did so late Saturday during the party, which would have covered the gunshots and screaming, and left from the scene of the crime in the bull's car. With the physical evidence from the scene processed and the locals and weekenders questioned, the police were left with no strong leads on a suspect. The investigation turned to James and Darlene and who they were in their day-to-day life. Investigators traveled to Fountain Valley and began following leads, leaving no stone unturned to try to get an idea of who this family was and who might want them dead. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. 
I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. At the time of their murders, James and Darlene had been married for 16 years. Their two sons, Bobby and Tommy, were born in 1952 and 1953, making them 12 and 13 years old. They lived in their Fountain Valley home for most of their marriage and were described as firmly middle class. Friends and family were shocked at the personal nature of the murders because of how normal the family seemed, and they had no known enemies. James Bowles was born on July 28, 1922, making him 43 years old at the time of his death. He was a lifelong resident of Southern California, and his family still lived in the area. James also served in the Navy from 1942 to 1946, achieving the rank of Chief Petty Officer working in aircraft radar installation. After his military service, he moved back to Southern California and took an engineering position at the Hughes Aircraft Company. Hughes was one of the largest employers in post-World War II Southern California and significantly expanded in the 1950s after receiving multiple large government contracts. James commuted from Fountain Valley to the El Segundo office near Los Angeles International Airport. Darlene Bowles was born in 1927 and 38 years old at the time of her death. Darlene relocated to Southern California when she was a young child, where she lived with her family in Long Beach until her first marriage. When Darlene was 17, she married a man named Harvey, who was over 30 years her senior. Her parents allowed the marriage, saying that she was a bit wild and Harvey seemed to bring stability into her life. The two married in Las Vegas and moved back to Long Beach, but they were only together for a few weeks before Darlene left Harvey. Harvey was interviewed by detectives as part of the murder investigation. Detectives had heard from several of Darlene's friends that her ex-husband had supposedly come around and asked to borrow money. According to them, Darlene declined, saying that much of their money was tied up in the cabin, and Harvey was reportedly unhappy about that. Harvey, however, denied that this ever happened. He told investigators that he had not seen or heard from Darlene since she left him in 1944. Harvey said that he repeatedly tried to contact her when Rinna, Darlene's mother, called him to tell him that their marriage was being annulled and he was not to try to contact Darlene further. Five years later, when she was 22, Darlene married James. She took a position at Hughes in the administrative department and worked out of the Fullerton office. The Fullerton office was significantly closer to their Fountain Valley home, so Darlene was able to be closer to home for her two boys. The land that the cabin was eventually built on was purchased by the couple in 1955. After a lengthy delay, they began construction in 1964. 
Friends, family, and coworkers said that their marriage seemed to be fairly typical. Several coworkers did note that the couple had their fair share of arguments, and sometimes they were explosive. But just as quickly as they would blow up, the couple would seem to be over it. Around the time of the murders, James had been sent on a long business trip to South Africa. Apparently, this business trip was the source of some marital discord. It was speculated that Darlene was not happy being left to care for her preteen sons alone for an extended period of time. And it was also said that Darlene did not feel like she had been kept in the loop with James's travel plans, and he was out of contact with her longer than she had expected him to be. Darlene ended up making several calls to James's supervisor before getting into contact with James. The couple further argued about the trip after he returned to California. Neighbors in Fountain Valley said that they felt that the arguments happened fairly frequently, enough so that one neighbor said they thought if Darlene and James didn't have children, they would already be divorced. Neighbors also claimed that Darlene was flirtatious with other men, sometimes in front of James. At least one neighbor said that she saw Darlene flirt with a man in front of James, but he didn't seem to react or care. This revelation sent police down a path looking for a potential suspect who may have been spurned by Darlene or jealous of her marriage to James. The lead landed police on one of Darlene's co-workers, a man named William. Darlene and William worked together, and they were also in the Hughes Bowling League together. During questioning by police, William admitted that he and Darlene would often go for drinks after their bowling nights. At first, William insisted that they were just friends who were, quote, very fond of each other, but it was under polygraph examination that he admitted that the relationship was more than just friendly. Detectives also determined during the same polygraph test that William was not responsible for the murders. Since they were not interested in any affairs unless the person was the potential culprit, they let William go and that lead dried up. I would point out here that while polygraph tests are not considered by most to be an accurate investigation tool today, in 1965 they were relied on heavily, and this investigation was no exception. By mid-September 1965, just a month after the murders, San Bernardino County sheriffs were making pleas to the public for any information related to the weekend of August 15th. They asked for anyone who was in the area to come forward and speak with police about what they saw, saying any information, no matter how inconsequential it may seem, might provide something that can turn into a lead or something that we can follow. During this press conference, investigators also revealed that they had interrogated and released several suspects. They voluntarily submitted to lie detector tests, and the interviews revealed that they didn't have any connection to the murders. Another prominent suspect was a 29-year-old man named Robert Laughlin. In October of 1965, he was arrested for stealing televisions from a store in Lake Arrowhead, which is a town near Crestline. When he was arrested, a 22 caliber weapon was also found in his possession. Since the Bulls family was murdered with a 22 caliber weapon, and Laughlin was a local who was in the area during the weekend in question, he was investigated as a possible suspect. Investigators coordinated with police in the nearby city of Redlands to surveil and eventually arrest Laughlin while he was walking down the street to bring him in for questioning. While investigators didn't find the connection to the Bulls family that they were looking for, they did find a significant amount of stolen property in Laughlin's possession. 
Laughlin also had a rap sheet with charges for theft in several other states. Laughlin confessed to stealing from the store in Lake Arrowhead and also confessed to breaking into empty cabins to steal electronics around the area. He denied having anything to do with the Bulls murders, and detectives were unable to match his 22 caliber weapon to the one used in the murders. In November 1965, he was officially cleared in the Bulls investigation. He was then charged with theft and illegal possession of a firearm. Since he had a previous felony record, he was barred from legally owning a gun. Laughlin pled not guilty by reason of insanity, and he was ordered to be examined by a medical professional to assess the validity of his plea. The insanity plea was rejected, and he was sent to prison on burglary charges later that year. Police had sunk a lot of time and resources trying to connect Laughlin to the murders, but once again they had found themselves back at square one with no suspect and no new leads. Six months later, in February 1966, another layer of mystery was added to the case. A routine check of the cabin revealed that the front door was unlocked. At this point, the house had been sealed off as a crime scene, and as far as the investigators were concerned, no one had gone in or out. A sweep of the cabin revealed evidence that it had actually been accessed multiple times. Detectives assembled a team that cased the cabin 24-7 for over a month, hoping that whoever was accessing the cabin would try again. But during their surveillance, no one ever came back. As time went on and the case went cold, investigators also had to deal with random people confessing to the murders. They pursued three instances seriously, but they all came up empty after determining that the people confessing had no connection to the murders. There was one more break in the case about a year after the murders when a local resident who lived near the cabin came forward with information. He said that on the night of August 14, 1965, he was driving along a road near the Bull's cabin shortly before 8.30 p.m. He told investigators that he was nearly run off the road by an oncoming, speeding red Dodge sedan. He only noticed the driver was a white male and couldn't remember anything else because he said he was focused on not running his own car off the road and over the embankment. This man came forward after seeing information posters that had been put up by the sheriff's department around town and recognized the car in the picture as the one that nearly caused the accident. Assuming this red Dodge was the bull's car, the driver was fleeing the murder scene at approximately 8.30 p.m. while the nearby party was in full swing. This time frame means the party would have drowned out any gunshots and screams, just as investigators had suspected. Investigators felt they had enough circumstantial evidence to build an accurate timeline of the crime. With the additional witness, they could all but certainly say that the Bulls were murdered in the evening of Saturday, August 14th. This also backed up their theory that the perpetrator left in their car and eventually abandoned it, where it was found a half mile down the road from the cabin. What this new evidence did not bring them was any new information that would lead to a suspect. Crestline also sees an influx of children, particularly during the summer, who attend local Christian camps that could each house hundreds of attendees at a time. Summers are the busiest months, and the camp brings on staff to accommodate the increased attendance. The summer of 1965 was no exception, and August was the final month of back-to-back summer camp sessions. 
One of these employees was a man named George Robert Stewart. He was in his mid-twenties when he worked at one of the local camps as a handyman, and his employment overlapped with the weekend that the bulls were at their cabin. Stewart came to the attention of San Bernardino investigators when the police department from Mobile, Alabama called in December 1966 and gave them notice that a murder suspect they were pursuing had connections in Crestline. When San Bernardino verified that Stewart was in Crestline at the same time as the Bulls, he moved to the forefront of their investigation. On November 25, 1966, brothers 13-year-old Michael and 9-year-old Randall Evans went missing from their home in Mobile, Alabama. The boys' parents reported that their house guest, later identified as Stewart, also went missing at that time. The bodies of the two boys were found in the woods about a month later. Both had been stabbed upwards of a dozen times and bound with tape. Stewart, who had been long gone by this point, was the prime suspect. But police were unable to find him, so they put out calls to law enforcement in the towns of all his previous known addresses. Stewart was employed by a Christian camp in Crestline, but even the reverend who ran the camp described him as a religious fanatic. He would incessantly quote the Bible to the point that it made those uncomfortable around him, even though they were at a religious-based camp. The reverend and other employees at the camp also said it became increasingly apparent to them that Stewart was not mentally well and required supervision while working at the camp. Stewart often wandered off into the woods, which was of key interest to detectives because the camp was only about two miles from the bull's cabin. Stewart also had to be told on numerous occasions that he was not to play with the children attending the camp while he was working. This was especially odd because he was a grown adult. Considering the age of his alleged victims in Mobile and his issue with getting in trouble for playing with the children at work and the age of Tommy and Bobby, Stewart seemed to be the suspect that the San Bernardino County Sheriffs had been looking for. Stewart abruptly left Crestline in February of 1966. He eventually resurfaced in Alabama, but was in the wind again that November around the time of the Evans' boys' disappearance. Police followed leads all over California and beyond, but nothing panned out. Stewart seemed to be a ghost. In September of 1967, San Bernardino and Mobile police both got calls from authorities in Fort Worth, Texas. They had recently arrested Stewart in nearby Arlington, Texas, for acting suspiciously. San Bernardino detectives left for Texas that day and were met by Mobile detectives. According to Texas authorities, Stewart had already admitted to, quote, hurting someone, but wouldn't give them more details than that. He admitted to detectives that he had molested the two Evans boys in Mobile, but stopped short of admitting to their murders. He also denied that he killed the Bulls family. He consented to a polygraph test, which he failed. He was noted on being deceptive on answers to questions about killing the Bulls family and the Evans boys. Both authorities from Mobile and San Bernardino left the interview believing that Stewart was responsible for all the murders. Stewart was extradited to Mobile while the investigation into the Evans' murders continued. However, Stewart was never indicted for molestation or murder charges in Mobile. Detectives couldn't conclusively connect him to the murders, so they tried to charge him with molesting another boy, 
but that boy refused to testify, and Stewart was released from custody in November of 1967. Meanwhile, there was trouble in San Bernardino as well. Investigators were unable to connect Stewart to their crime scene, and they couldn't show that Stewart had ever met the Bulls, and there was no other evidence that placed him at the scene. Even though investigators believed that Stewart was the man responsible for the Bulls' murders, they just couldn't prove it. And because they couldn't prove it, they had no cause to arrest him. As of a 2004 article revisiting the Bulls' murders, Stewart was incarcerated in Illinois on sexual abuse charges against children. At the time of that reporting, he was eligible for parole in 2014. I was unable to locate any information about Stewart that was more recent than that, and I was unable to find out if he had been paroled. If he is alive today, he would be in his late 70s. After Stewart was released, the case went cold, with the lead detective believing he was the culprit. They said they didn't pursue charges against Stewart because they had no evidence to justify detaining him. The case has been occasionally revisited over the years. In 1983, an article profiled several cold cases from San Bernardino County. Included in the article was the murder of the Ryan family that later ended in the arrest and conviction of Kevin Cooper, who was covered in episode 47. This article noted that within the first year of the Bulls' investigation, San Bernardino sheriffs logged 20,000 man-hours, conducted 3,000 interviews, and cleared 50 potential suspects. The most notable coverage is from a 2004 article by Robert Bonson, which I will link on the website. This article pieced together and made available much of the detective's notes and interviews from the time of the investigation. So if you want a more in-depth read on the investigator's interviews from 1965, please check out the article. It's quite an impressive compilation of information. Like other cold cases that this podcast has covered, this is one with a possible suspect and no evidence that can bring them to trial. Those involved with the original investigation have long since retired, and many, if not all, have also passed away. The same is true with the surviving family members who held on to hope that the Bulls case would eventually be solved. August 2019 will mark 54 years since the Bulls family was murdered. If their lives had not been cut short that summer night, and if they were still alive today, Darlene and James would be in their 90s, and their sons, Tommy and Bobby, would be in their 60s. And that wraps up the show for this week. Thank you so much for listening. For more information on this episode, visit the website, misconductpodcast.com. You'll find further links to reading on this episode and more information about misconduct. If you want to get this episode early and ad-free, then check out my Patreon. If you subscribe at the $3 per month or higher level, you can listen to the episode before it's released on the regular feed. And thank you so much to all of our existing Patreon supporters. Your support helps make this show possible. If you have a second, head on over to my social media pages and let me know what you think of this week's episode. Do you think that the police had the right suspect in mind, or do you think that they missed something critical? Share your thoughts and opinions with me and other listeners. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at MisconductPod. And if you have a case that you would like to see covered, just drop me a line. Send it over to MisconductPodcast at gmail.com.
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.